morning, church. Welcome to you guys. Okay, if the lights do flicker on us, as they were doing that the first two services, I think Scott's probably got it fixed. But we're going to ignore it. I'm going to ignore it, and you are going to ignore it. Let's focus on the message this morning. If you're new to us today, then you should know last week we started our current sermon series on Amazing Grace, and we're simply asking the question, as Christians sometimes we wonder, is there something more? We're like the little boy in the lunchroom in that movie, he holds his bowl up, he says, please, sir, may I have some more? And we may wonder, why don't I have more love in my life, or why don't I have more joy in my life, or why don't I have more peace in my life? And sometimes the reason is, not always, but sometimes the reason is because we are shallow when it comes to our understanding of grace. The doctrine of God's grace is a, a mother load of gold ore for us to excavate, to investigate, to understand, to wrap our arms around. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prayed for the Ephesians church, says, I want you to understand and experience the love of Christ. I want you to know how deep it is, how wide it is, how high it is, how broad it is, so that you can experience all of God's power and be complete. This is available to us as we understand His loving grace. So in this sermon series, we're taking a look at the grace of God. We will not fully appreciate God's love and grace unless we understand the dilemma that took place within God's nature that was due to two equal but opposite attributes that are a part of God. So that's what we're going to look at today. The first attribute is the holiness of God. God is holy. Isaiah 6, 3. These are angelic beings proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Into the New Testament, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the angels proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the ancient languages, they didn't have italics, they didn't have bold. In order to emphasize a word, they used repetition. If you see a word repeated twice, well, that word is significant. If you have a three-fold formula like this, this is a particularly intense superlative to communicate this attribute of God's nature. We don't see this with any other attribute. You don't read powerful, powerful, powerful. You don't read majestic, majestic, majestic is the Lord God. You don't even read love, love, love. Only with holiness do we get this. So what is the holiness of God? We say holy moly. We say holy Toledo. What does it mean to say that God is holy? Well, the word literally means to cut and to separate. And when applied to God, it communicates the idea that God is a separate, unique being. He is holy. He's ontologically different from us. And don't lose me on that word. That just means in the essence of his being, he's a different kind of being. In the first place, everybody in here is a created being, as all other living beings. Only God is uncreated being. Was, is, is to come. He's unique. Not going to focus on that part of it. The other way in which this word applies to God has to do with God's ethical holiness. That refers to his moral excellence. God cannot sin. He does not sin. And he stands against sin. Certain things he stands for, other things he stands against, he stands against sin. And as creatures created in his image, God calls us to be morally and ethically holy like he is holy. Peter writes, 1 Peter 1.15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
And there are penalties attached to this law. The law that God has given us, the moral law, for instance, in the Old Testament, this is simply the character of God inscripted into laws. It's the character of God. You, you shall not lie. Why? Because God is truth in his character. So we're to be people of truth. All of the moral law is God's character inscripted. So we're called to follow it, and there are penalties if we don't. So it is this aspect of God, this attribute, his holiness, that adds to our worship that element of ref, uh, a reverence, of deference, of even what the Bible calls fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's this aspect of God that's not quite safe. A little bit of danger there. I liken it to uh, electricity. The high voltage wires. Electricity is wonderful. Electricity gives us many blessings. It gives us light. It gives us technology. It gives us air conditioning. Which we remember that from two weeks ago when we didn't have any air conditioning. Wonderful blessings. But at the same time, electricity is a little bit dangerous. You must handle it with care. There are rules and laws for handling electricity. If you violate those, there's a penalty to be paid. And likewise with God. C.S. Lewis communicated this in his Chronicles of Narnia, the first one, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And Jesus is represented by a lion named Aslan. And one of the children who's in Narnia asks a woodland creature, I think it's Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and asking about the lion who looks pretty fierce. And she asks the question, is he safe? And the answer comes back, no, he's not safe. But he's good. He's good. God is not totally safe, but he's good. All right, so this is the holiness of God, attribute number one. The second attribute that we want to look at is the love of God. The Bible says God is love. Love, of course, is a part of the very essence of God. The love of God is his attitude toward us, his benevolence, his kindness, his goodwill, and it's expressed mostly by his gifts, his Love loves to give. We see the gifts of God in creation. We live on an earth and in a world that God created for us, not because we deserve it, just he loves us. And he wants to give us something good. Even though it's tainted by sin, there's still enough of that original pristine beauty left to know that God gave us a good gift and a home in creation. The gifts of providence, the providence of God is how he provides for us every day the things that we need. God is giving to us right now at this very moment. The fact that you are here means God's been providing for you for many, many years. Now, some people may say, well, he's not providing for me at the level that I would like to be provided for. But be that as it may, I'm 59 years old. That means God's been providing for me for 59 years faithfully and without fail. Some of you are a little bit younger and some of you are a little bit older. The fact that you are here and breathing and your heart's beating means God is providing for you and sustaining you right now. He just loves to give. His attitude toward us is friendliness. He wants to shower us with his love and his gifts. Like, like grandparents. He's kind of like grandparents. So grandparents, they love those grandkids. They love the grandkids more than the parents do. And so they're, gone, they're giving them gifts, and the parents get to the point where they say, oh, Mom, Dad, come on, don't give them anything more. Don't give them any more sugar. Don't give them any more money. You're overdoing it at Christmas. You're going to spoil these kids. And Grammy and Papa said, oh, okay, all right, all right. And then when they turn their back, you sneak around and you give them something else, right? Say, Don't tell mom and dad. You, say, that you can't stop them from giving. 
And it's the same thing with God. He loves us so much, you can't stop him from giving. All right, so we've got this. We've got, and you knew this. So you've got the holiness of God, and you've got the love of God. These are two attributes of the character of God. Now, these two attributes have it coexisted peacefully like ebony and ivory from eternity past. Ebony and ivory. You know, live together in perfect harmony. Even after the world was created, Genesis chapter 1 and, and, and chapter 2, and God created man, you still got holiness and love coexisting. Everything's copacetic. God is walking there in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. It's all great. No problem. Until sin entered the picture. Adam and Eve, they eat the forbidden fruit. This is an act of sin. It's an act of rebellion. It's an act of lust, the Bible says. It's, a, it's an act of deceit. It's a, it's a heinous sin against God. And when sin entered the picture, that caused something, an, an unbelievable transformation to take place within the nature of God, within his very character. It caused tension to develop between two attributes of God, his holiness and his love. Now, I've given you your little object lesson for today. Young people, this is an ancient artifact called a clothespin. Back in the day, ask your Grammy and your papa. Back in the day, they had clotheslines that hang them up, hang the clothes up to dry, and that's what they use these for. All right, but this is my object lesson today. Now, on one side, we've got love written, and the other side, we've got holiness. When you squeeze those ends together on the clothespin, these two sides are pulled apart, and tension is created by that, that spring. You know, that's tension. You, you probably couldn't hold that for 30 minutes. Your, your thumb and your forefinger are going to get tired created by that tension. What's causing this tension on the clothespin? You are by squeezing it. You're causing that tension on the spring. What is causing the tension within the nature of God? You are. When I say you, I mean you. And I mean me, of course. I should say we are. And Adam and Eve did. And their kids and everybody by our sin. It is sin that caused these two attributes to come into tension with one another. Romans eleven twenty two. 22, consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. And the reason is, it's not because God's nature changed itself. It didn't. God is always the same. This is called the immutability of God. It is that these two aspects or attributes of God's nature respond totally different ways towards sin and towards sinners. The holiness of God, when confronted with sin, morphs or transforms into wrath. The holiness of God, when confronted with sin and sinners, is transformed into wrath. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Hebrews 12, 29, God is a consuming fire. Now you say, Steve, you're not going to go all hellfire and brimstone on us right now, are you? No, but yes. Now, so here's the thing. The wrath of God has always existed in potential sort of below the surface, like a dormant volcano. 
It's always there. It just never had the occasion to arise until sin entered the picture. And when sin entered the picture, the dormant volcano became an active volcano. And the wrath of God expressed towards sin, it's like an erupting volcano with the fire and the ash and the lava. This is, this is a natural expression and a fair and a just expression of God towards sin. And I know it's not PC to talk about that much these days, the wrath of God, even in some churches, but it is absolutely biblical. In the Old Testament alone, there are 20 words that are translated wrath in some form or another and over 560 references. And you say, well, yeah, Steve, that's the Old Testament. God's mean and he's wrathful back there. And in the New Testament, he's nice and kind. Well, the verses that we started with here are from the New Testament that refer to the wrath of God and Jesus himself is a witness to God's wrath. In Thessalonians, Paul writes, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. Who? Jesus, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You would think that Jesus would be a little more Christ-like. I think of it the Hulk because I grew up reading Marvel comics. Back when you actually read comic books, I read about the Hulk. And then I, when I grew up a little older is when they had that TV show and Bill Bixby was, you know, in the Hulk. Uh, and so who is the Hulk's alter ego? Somebody's got to know this. Bruce Banner. Mild-mannered Dr. Bruce Banner, all cool, copacetic. But at, at the start of every episode in the TV show, Bruce Banner, they had that little clip. He's talking to the reporter, and he's got the classic line, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And when you made Bruce Banner angry, then the Hulk busts out. He's angry, and he deals with whatever made him angry. Well, likewise, with God, I think about this. Don't make God angry. You're not going to like God when he's angry. What is it that makes God angry? It is sin that makes him angry. It's the lying. It's deceit. It's the lust, it's the adultery, it's the murder and the murder in people's hearts, all of that sin. And it's, like I said, it's just and it's fair. It's what people deserve. So the wrath of God is what holiness becomes when it's confronted with sin. And if that's all of God that we had to deal with, no, there would be no hope. There would be no hope. God would just nuke us and satisfy his holiness. Where's the hope? Well, the hope is in this other attribute of God. At the same time that the volcano is erupting over here when confronted with sin, you've got the love of God. And the love of God is transformed when confronted with sin and sinners. The love of God expresses itself as grace. Grace, like a geyser with a fountain erupting of grace, flowing, a wave of gracious forgiveness flowing out from God. The word grace literally means gift. It is a gift that brings joy. And we said God's love loves to give. We see his gifts in creation. We see his gifts in providence. But when we're talking about the whole area of redemption, God's love is expressed through redeeming grace or saving grace. <clears throat> The definition for grace that is often used is unmerited favor. Unmerited means undeserved. 
unmerited favor. That's really a pretty weak term. If you go outside today and after church, you happen upon an unfortunate person who's homeless and you give them a dollar, that's unmerited favor. They did nothing to deserve the dollar and you gave them a dollar. If you go out of church today out into the parking lot and you encounter someone who's breaking into your car and trying to hotwire it and steal it and you give them a dollar, that's grace. Not only did they not do anything to deserve the, the gift, you did something for them or you treated them in a way that's the exact opposite of how, what they had earned. You should be calling the police and they're taken off to jail and you gave them a dollar. Well, this is grace. What we've actually earned and what we deserve is the wrath of God for our sin. But in place of that, God treats us and offers us a gift of forgiveness and redemption and salvation and eternal life. He's giving us the exact opposite of what we deserve, or at least offering that to us. <clears throat> so which one's going to win? This is the tension there. You can see why there's tension. You've got the volcano of, and the lava's flowing towards you right now, and the fire is going to burn you up. You've got that. And on the other side, you've got this loving, gracious geyser of a fountain and a flood of forgiveness, and it's rolling towards you. So you've got the lava, you've got the water of forgiveness. Which one's going to win? I mean, is the, is the fire going to evaporate the water? Is the water going to quench the fire? This is the tension within the nature of God. How is this to be resolved? It's God's dilemma. It's our problem. It is God's dilemma. How can he be true to his holiness and satisfy his wrath? How can he be true to his love and satisfy his grace and forgive us? Where's the resolution? And we might say, well, the easiest thing would be for God to just deny, you know, just turn off the holiness, flip a switch and turn it off. You know you want to save everybody, so just save everybody. He can't turn that off. He can't turn off his holiness and he can't turn off his love. They're both his nature. Think of the word righteousness. When you are righteous, biblically speaking, you are lining up with the law of God. You're being obedient to God's laws, which are based in his character. That's righteousness. What about, what do we mean when we say God is righteous? Well, his nature is the standard. So when God is righteous, he is being true to his own nature, all of it. We've only talked about two attributes, but these two. He has to be true to his holiness. He has to be true to his love, or he ceases to be God, and he cannot cease to be God. What is the resolution? Okay, so here we go. Back with the clothespin. Here's the resolution. I want now. Here, here, the, the first two servants, they are terrible at this. This should be so easy. What I want you to do, I want you to take this clothespin and gently, slowly pull one end of it out to the side like that. Don't pull it apart. Pull it to the side. It should hang together like a cross. Now, if you break it, as so many people have, we're finding pieces all over the floor. Andre made 300 of these, so we've got some extras, and you can get an extra one. All right, so, but I wanted you to have something, and I wanted something tangible to illustrate this concept. How did God resolve the tension between his holy wrath and his loving grace? Here's how he did it. God decided to incarnate, which means to enflesh himself and become a person. And to take upon, and this is, this is God the Logos, who is, atten, 
who has existed from eternity, God the Logos, the second person of the Godhead, became incarnated or enfleshed and took upon himself the punishment of his own wrath. God took upon himself his own pronounced punishment, the volcano of God's holy wrath. He took upon himself in the form of Jesus on the cross. So you see on this piece of the cross that reads holy wrath, when you pull it into a cross, you see the name Jesus there. Because Jesus is the one who experienced God's holy wrath on himself and satisfied that aspect of God's nature. Now, on the other piece that says grace and love, on the inside, I've written my name, Steve. Because, because of what Jesus did over here, satisfying God's holy wrath, God's gracious love is available to me. And this personalizes it. And by the way, uh, Andre wrote these with ultra-fine Sharpie. I've got three of them out there on the Welcome Center desk. And if you want to, on the way out before you leave, write your name on this gracious, loving piece of the cross. Put it up in your refrigerator. Hang it from your rearview mirror for a week. Or toss it away, but remember the lesson. And the lesson is, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God has been true to himself. His holy wrath has been satisfied, and his loving grace is available to us. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Here's that phrase, he is just and the one who justifies. The cross makes God just and the one who justifies. He is just because he has satisfied his just holy wrath. He is the one who justifies because he redeems and forgives people. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God is just, and he is the one who justifies. God could not choose between his two natures. He could not choose to be holy at the expense of his love. He could not choose to be loving at the expense of his holiness. He had no choice. He had to resolve this, and that's the way he resolved it. Brilliant. A problem truly worthy of God, and he resolved it. We do have a choice. We have a choice whether when that day comes, we will relate to God in terms of his holy justice or in terms of his loving grace. That's our choice. It's as if God looks out on humanity through two windows. You've got the holiness window and you've got the love window. And when God looks out over here on the holiness window, this is where most of mankind winds up, and he sees people who are under his holy, just wrath. And then over here, you've got the love window. And God looks out through this window at people who have accepted, who have accepted his gracious, loving, kind offer of salvation through faith in the cross. And with these people, he sees forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. That's our choice. Do we choose to relate to God? Now, we don't have a choice whether to relate to God. Once we come into existence, we're in God's world, we're under God's rule, we're under God's laws and subject to his judgment. But we get to choose whether on the day of judgment we relate to God through his holiness or we relate to God through his loving grace. Our Father in heaven, as we plunge into and dig deeper and excavate this gold mine of your loving 
grace. We pray that we can be reminded things. These are just basic truths in your word. The infinite price that you paid so that we could experience your grace, your forgiveness, your redemption, and your salvation. How much more it means to us when we know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.